This is an Our Savior Evangelical Free Church podcast. To learn more, visit osefc.org. We are going to continue to study the book of Colossians together this morning. So if you brought your Bible, I hope that you did, uh, open it to Colossians chapter 3. We're going to pick up at verse 5. If you didn't bring a Bible, there should be one in the rack in front of you. Grab that Bible, open that one to Colossians chapter 3. If you're not familiar with the Bible, Colossians is in the New Testament. There's a table of contents in there, and you can find that book and find chapter 3 and verse 5. While you're turning there, let me tell you what the last words of the section that we're going to read together are this morning. Verse 11, we're going to read from 5 to 11, ends by saying this, Christ is all and in all. If there's a better way to capture the Christian's perspective on life, the way that we're reoriented when we're awakened to faith in Jesus Christ. If there's a better way to describe that, I'm hard-pressed to know even what it would be. When you're shown the grace of God in Christ, nothing is the same after that. And whatever you were living for, whatever was of utmost importance to you, wherever your previous dreams were, they're not those things anymore. Christ is. It's now, for Christians, every bit of our lives is a chance to praise God and enjoy him and bless other people in his name. And I think it's just captured by that. Christ is all. Christ is everything. And so to allow us to do that and to use that to do that and to to propel us forward toward a higher purpose. Uh, uh, Paul in the letter to the Philippians calls it an upward calling. God does three things, and they're all here in in Colossians 3, 5 to 11. He does three things. Um, He teaches us first, number one. He teaches us or instructs us. Because the truth is that we are primed kind of from birth to live for our own purposes, our own glory, with our own set of priorities. So we need to be taught how to live with Christ being everything. The second thing he does is he counsels us. You might also say he warns us of what we're likely to be without Christ being everything, and that's ultimately going to work for our harm and in our hearts to subvert the cause of Christ in the world. So he offers us counsel, instructs, counsels, and thirdly, God encourages your heart and builds into you in a way that is unmatched or unparalleled. So if you've come in this morning feeling like a failure, if you're kind of hanging on as a Christian by a thread, if you are living with the consequences of, of poor decisions or, or long-term broken patterns that have shattered relationships, that have harmed you or somebody that you love, God has hope for you. There's grace for you. Forgiveness is possible. Even things that seem like they're fixed, set in stone, God can soften them up. He can chisel them out. 
loosen them, and he can even turn those things around. One of the things that I I, I believe it's important that Christians just hear on a regular basis, because we can so easily forget it, is Jesus still saves people. And Jesus still works on people's hearts. Jesus can change people. He really can. I've seen it. I hope you have. And by faith, we'll see him do it again. But Jesus doesn't change people through our own willpower, kind of like you, you make a New Year's resolution to lose 15 pounds and you just need to kind of stay off sugar for January. God changes people through so much more power. The same power, in fact, it says in the Bible, that he uses to raise Jesus from the dead is the power that he actively applies to your life for change when you open yourself up to him through Christ. So to take a man who was dead and make him alive, to take other men, few people throughout the New Testament who were persecutors of Christians, murderers of Christians, and are turned into missionaries and and pastors. If God can do that, he can work on your heart too. It's important to remember all that because what we're going to read about is acting differently. These these verses, Colossians, really all of chapter 3 is sort of an explanation about how to live as a Christian and among the family of God. But we have to remember that that's not first about our behavior. What we do comes from who we are. So this isn't first about what we do. This is first and primarily about who we are, who God is calling us and has created us to be. And the point of these verses isn't to clean up your life or to clean up your tongue or just at least try to tighten things down a little bit. The goal here is to be able to say Christ is everything. Christ is all. And you don't possess that power on your own. You're not on your own ever going to say Christ is all, but God has plenty of power, more than enough, to give you what you need to say that and to live that and to glorify God with your life. So I want to read these verses now. I want to study them together. I want to praise God with you. Colossians 3, we start at verse 5. Put to death. Therefore, what is earthly in you? Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another. Seeing that you've put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here, there is not Jew and Greek, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free. But Christ is all and in all. These verses come after verse 1 of chapter 3. The chapter begins by saying, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is. The reason that we need to be told what 
people who have been raised with Christ are like and what they do is because prior to Christ intervening and saving us, we were plenty pleased to live for ourselves and do whatever we thought was good. We were forming our own system of right and wrong and of righteousness and unrighteousness. Uh, There's a a contrast that this chapter draws quite a few times between what is earthly and what is above, where Christ is. It says where he is seated at the right hand of God. So where's Christ seated at the right hand of God? In heaven. Three different New Testament writers pick up this same idea. John does it in his gospel. Paul does it here and in a couple of other places. And James does it in James chapter 3. They use the same language. It's clear that what is earthly is to be renounced. And what is heavenly or above is to be pursued. Renounce what is earthly. Pursue what is above. But when I say it like that, it sounds kind of soft, doesn't it? Renounce. Like I've renounced eating sugar. Like I've renounced watching Netflix. Like I've renounced. But if something good comes along, am I going to be that serious about what I've renounced? Or is that just kind of something I've put away for a little while? Verse 5 doesn't say renounce. What does it say? Look it in your Bible. It says put to death. Some of you might have a Bible translation that says to mortify. The meaning is clear. It's not soft at all. Kill what is earthly in you. The Puritan John Owen said, be killing sin or it will be killing you. And that's what Paul means here. We're not playing games. If you're not serious about your sin to the point where you are ready to kill it, where you're battling it, like you're ready to rage war on it, then your sin's winning. It is as clear and as black and white to that. If you are not waging war on your sin, your sin is winning. Look at this list. Sexual immorality, impurity, evil desires. It clarifies that covetousness is idolatry. That's a perfect example of how insidious sin is. When you say, I'm kind of getting used to and I'm pretty comfortable with sort of looking around and seeing what other people have and I get jealous, I get covetous, And I feel like I should have something that I don't, but they do. I deserve it. They don't. The clarification to say that's idolatry is there because what we're really saying when we look around and we say, I deserve something I don't have, what we're really saying is I would would do a better job of ruling over my own life than God is doing right now. And that's idolatry. When you look around and determine that God hasn't given you what you deserve, you're either doing one of two things. You're putting yourself in his place, saying, I do a better job, 
or you're openly declaring, I want what my covetous heart desires more than I want what God has put in my life. Do you get that? You're either saying I could do a better job than God or whatever else my eyes have fixed themselves on. I want that more than what God has given me. Don't get comfortable with sin. Don't get comfortable with sexual immorality and lust. Don't look at porn. Don't rationalize it and say, well, it's not really porn. It's not technically. It's dangerous to sit with fantasies of what it would be like to be married to somebody else. You'll destroy the marriage that God has given you. Verse 6 says that these things are so serious that the holiness of God must destroy them. They cannot be allowed to exist in the long term. Then verse 7 comes with more bad news. It says that we, you and I, all of us, once walked in these things. We lived in them. This isn't the story of somebody else. These aren't the problems of other people, worse people, lower people, less self-controlled people. We lived in these things. And so what are we to do? Is all hope lost? No, it's not. Verse 8 says that we must, what we must do. But before we read that, I, I just want to talk about how it's done. When we say that Christ is all in, in, in all, what we're really saying is it's all about Jesus. Life only makes sense with him. And so on, on one end of the spectrum, what does it mean to have a G, all, it'd be all about Jesus? On one end of that spectrum, there's this biblical theological truth that the whole reason that universe exists is for the praise and glory of the Son of God. Everything you are, everything you see, everything that James Webb will show us when it reaches Lagrange 2 will be and is for the glory of Christ. That's the cosmic spectrum. That's the theological spectrum. On the other end of that spectrum is you, your own life. It's not just the universe that exists for the glory of God. You were created for his glory. He knew you for his glory. He made you for his glory. He wove you together for his glory. So every day that you or I spend trying to do something else than live for the glory of Christ with Jesus is all is going to feel hollow. And it's going to be a day wasted. It's going to be a day spent doing something so much less than what we were created to do. People can ignore that for quite a while, but eventually it catches up with them. Eventually we find that only the glory of Christ satisfies, gives meaning and purpose to our life. So last week I was uh, in Kansas City with my family as part of a Christmas gift for my oldest daughter. Like it was here, it was freezing cold there. We had some time to kill, so we found a bookstore. And while we were in line buying a couple of things, I overheard a man asking one of the employees where he could find a book about dying. He had a friend who wasn't expecting to live long, and he wanted to read about what was going to happen at the end of his life. And I, I don't know what he was going to find in, in that bookstore. 
but I can tell you what he needs. He needs to put off the old self with its sin, and he needs to put on the new self, which can be his if he wants to be raised with Christ. And he can reflect his creator, and when he dies, he can live with his creator forever and ever and ever. And the question that everyone is seeking to answer, everybody, Christians and non-Christians, we're all seeking, how, how do we do that? How, what, what is it that's going to give us meaning and purpose? What is it that's going to give us salvation? And people, people try to do all kinds of things. Good works and charity. Some people try productivity. If I can just kind of conquer the world, if I can conquer my job, if I can rise in the company. Creativity. Can I make something that inspires people? Some people try family, legacy. Can I leave behind something besides just my life? Is there other lives that I can propel forward? But the Bible has the answer. How do we put on the new self? So listen to 2 Timothy. I'm going to build a quick little chain here. Listen to 2 Timothy 2, 20 and 21. Now in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use and some for dishonorable. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. So when it comes to putting on the new self, when it comes to glorifying Christ, there you have it. You cleanse yourself from what is dishonorable, and that way you're ready to be useful to God, ready for good work. But even with those verses, there's still just one pesky problem. On its own, that seems to be like the same advice that everybody is assuming. Clean yourself up. Absolve yourself of guilt. Do good. Be worthy. It never really answers the question, but how much is enough? When when, when am I worthy enough? When have I done enough? Whose definition of good are we even using? Don't kid yourself. There's plenty of definitions of what's good in the world. We have to be careful not to just read these as instructions and hear this counsel and leave thinking that it's all up to us or on our shoulders to, to be some version of good. That's actually what God wants to free us from is our own definition of good and lay upon us his. And this is how God encourages us today. By telling us that we're cleansed, that we're made new, that we have the new self, not by what we try to do on our own, but by, but by Jesus has already done. Listen to 1 John 1, 7. But if we walk in the light... As he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. That's how we're made honorable. That's how we're cleansed. That's how we put off the old self and put on the new. We don't try harder. We step from darkness into the light of Christ and trust that his blood was shed for the forgiveness of our sins. And we have the hope of actually seeing this done because God has said that in Christ it will be. 
When Jesus was crucified, when when Roman soldiers nailed him to the cross, following custom, they also nailed with him probably a piece of wood that had the charge against him, the reason that he was being crucified, written on it. And they did that, not just to Jesus, but to other people as well, so that all who looked upon them, crucifixion was a very public display. They did it on a hill. They did it on tall timbers so people could see. And then they inscribed, this was the crime that warranted such a nasty death. In Jesus' case, he was accused of blasphemy. So it was nailed with him as a sign that said he claims to be the king of the Jews. But that wasn't the real charge that put him on the cross. Earlier in Colossians, we read about another charge, something else that was nailed to the cross. Colossians 2.14 says that Jesus was able to cancel the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. The people who crucified him thought they were putting him there for his idolatry. But in reality, they were putting him there for your idolatry and my idolatry. Our sin is so serious that only nailing Christ to the cross and nailing the record of our debt with him is enough to free us from it. But thanks be to God that grace is greater still. Let's look at what it says in in some of these verses. Verse 8. But now you must put them away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. We don't put these away because we are in righteousness that way. We put them away because Jesus has has made us righteous And we understand that those he has made righteous don't live like that anymore. That's the way earthly people live. But in Christ, we become heavenly people. And heavenly people, citizens of the kingdom of God, reflect the image of God. Look at how verses 9 and 10 talk about this. So we don't lie to one another. We've put off the old self with its old earthly practices. We put on the new self, and that brings a renewed knowledge after the image of our creator. Why don't we lie? It's not a simple saying, well, it's wrong to lie. Sure, it's wrong to lie. But we don't lie because God doesn't lie. He tells the truth all the time. We don't walk around angry and say obscene things because God isn't angry, and he doesn't speak obscenely. Occasionally when I, when I say something like that, people will, will point out that, that God is angry sometimes. And in the Bible, they will say, well, he has a, a holy anger. Well, that's true. He, he does. God gets angry in a holy way sometimes. Here's the difference. In God's anger, in Jesus' anger, and Jesus did get angry a couple of times in his life. They don't sin. God doesn't sin. Jesus doesn't sin. I bet you this. 
I bet you when you are angry, you're more likely to sin than when you're not angry. So why don't we get angry? Because in our anger, we're really likely to sin. We're much better off when we pray and ask God to make us patient and forgiving and to help us to calm down. If your Christianity makes you angry all the time, if your Christianity makes you think less of people, if you're listening to Christian leaders who are constantly deriding other faithful Christians, take this counsel. That's not what people who've put on the new self live like. Our Savior, when he was beaten and mocked and tortured, though he could have called down the fire of heaven, though he could have lashed out, though he could have risen up, wasn't just calm. He prayed for those who would torment him. He received the chastisement that they gave him. Kids watch what parents do. A few years ago, I, I was riding, when we used to ride in the car, you know, with other people who weren't part of our immediate family, uh, I, was, I was in the car with, with uh, somebody else, and their young son was in the back seat. We were at a light, and the light turned green, but the car in front of us didn't start moving right away. So the son, probably all of five or six years old, is there in the back seat. He starts getting angry and yelling at the car in front of us to move. Where do you suppose a five-year-old learned to do that? He learned it from his dad. And it made me think quite a bit about what my kids see me doing. Am I easily angered? Do I say hurtful things? Or am I an encourager looking to, to give grace to other people? Now, in that car, the son obviously revered his father. He wanted to kind of be like him. He was doing the kinds of things that he'd seen his father doing, acting like him. And I, I thought to myself, how much aggravation would this father save his son throughout a lifetime if he taught him to be just a little bit more patient with people, because the truth is, you getting angry in your car about somebody not moving doesn't actually move anybody along any faster. It only makes you angry. It only messes up your afternoon. It only pulls you farther, probably, from the mind of Christ. As children of God, we have a father who doesn't just tell us to act like him or else. We have a father who has said, you've tried everything else, but I've given my son for you, and through him you can live with me. And so we mirror the actions of God, not because we're worried that God will get us if we don't, but because God has already got us. We're part of a family that doesn't react that way. We're men and women who are better than that.
We've got a Father who's taught us better than that. We reflect Him. And there's this final verse of this section. It says, Here there's not Greek, Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. So here's what this is saying. Among the people of God in the church, there are not worldly divisions, earthly divisions. And the reason is like everything else. God's not divided that way. Among the people of God, there is only Christ. And it's all about him. And he indwells everybody who repents of their sin and believes in him. So earlier this week, kind of the first time that I sat down to really dig in, sort of regularly reading what we're studying, but I'm just really digging in earlier this week. And one of my first questions was, why does it go here all of a sudden? It feels like a bit of an abrupt transition. First, it's, you know, beware the snare of sexual immorality. Then it's do not lie. It's, it's putting on the new self. It's, that's, a, that's a progression that I would expect. But, but then the crescendo sort of all, to all this is there aren't Greeks and Jews. Don't pay a lot of attention to circumcision. Why? What's the, what's the connection? Well, the connection is identity. Where our identity now lies. It's these last few words again. Christ is all. This is all about what defines us and shapes us. The, the power to change never comes from a list of rules or a set of obligations. Are there anything in these lists that apart from growing in Christ, you would think are good? I don't think so. People regularly come and want to talk with me about things. And, and, and the reality is, people know what's good and what's not good. People know what's right and what's wrong. It's that we lack an understanding of exactly how to change. It's not just knowing a set of rules. That's simple. It's that we don't take advantage of what God gives us, namely the person and the work and the power of Christ Jesus to actually change, to put really these things away. The only way that we're actually going to work on malice and hate in our heart, anything else that's sinful, I mean, I mean really put it away, wage war against it, put it to death. The only way that that works is by giving it to Jesus. And you know why? Because you and I really don't have the power on our own to put those things to death. We don't. But God does. And what he does is he takes our sin and he writes the charge against us and he nails it to the cross with Jesus. So Jesus was nailed to the cross because those who hated him wanted to kill him. That was such a declaration of their disdain for him, their hate for him. So that's, that's what dr- hate drove them to that. And then you know what happened? It's not what you think. You know who killed Jesus? They didn't. It's God who finishes the job. It's God who turns his face, his back, Way from Jesus 
and allows him to suffer there. Isaiah 53 says that he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. His chastisement was necessary to bring us peace with God. And by his wounds were healed. That's what it costs for us to sin. The death of the Son of God. And so he dies. And it's God who finishes the job. But because he died for us in our place, we can also share in his resurrection. And if we've been raised with him, we have the power to reflect him and now bring him glory. This list of ways somebody might be described are all earthly identities. You're a Jew or a Greek. We have ethnic categories like this in our society today. You could even be a barbarian. A barbarian is a, is a general term for a group of people who were seen as, as uneducated and dumb. Greeks would make fun of them. Their, their language, they, they didn't think they spoke a very sophisticated language, and they, saw, and they thought their language sounded like babies, like ba, 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 so they're called barbarians. The Scythians are actually the most described, uh, sorry, the most despised group of barbarians. But now none of those old identities matter. Only who you are in Christ matters. And everyone in him is part of the family of God. And and our Father shows what it looks like to live now with a new identity. Whatever you were before you gave your life to Jesus is your old self. That's your former life. If you're in Christ, now you have a new life. And the way God sees you eternal security, they're, they're transformed instantaneously. There should be a change that's noticeable in you when you are in Christ, but I want to give you some encouragement here too. These things that we're talking about, they're not going to go away instantly. We've got long-held patterns. We've got a lot of generational, sometimes even things going on in families. And so if you're worried to say, I do these things, Do I even have a new self? I want you to know that there is grace and there's the promise of God that he can work powerfully in you. So let's balance this. This isn't an excuse to go on in old self sinful ways. But I also don't want you to go out of here beating yourself up and saying, woe is me and terrible am I. In Christ, God has made you new. And the same power that he used to raise Jesus from the dead is powerfully at work in you to transform you. So also give yourself a break. To close, let me say this. If you've been raised with Christ, seek the things of him and he will give them to you. If you're frustrated that they're not coming faster, disappointed in yourself, Receive his grace. But receive his counsel as well. This is sort of the balance. Don't get comfortable with sin. If you've fallen into a pattern of rationalizing and accepting some sin, be warned that it will kill you if you're not asking God for the strength to kill it. And the strength 
for all of these things. How do we receive the grace of Christ? Look onto Jesus. How to receive, receive the power to change? Press in to Jesus. My prayer for us all is that he would be everything to us. Let's pray together. May Christ be all in our hearts, in our minds, and with one another in the church. Pray, God, and we ask that you would do this. For we are powerless, but your power knows no bounds. Amen. Our Savior is a congregation located in Wheeling, Illinois. Our vision can be summed up in four words. Building community, bringing Christ. To learn more about this vision and our hope for our neighborhood, visit us online at osefc.org.